Ezra chapter 8, the first 23 <coughs> verses, remembering that these are the words of the Lord. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithmar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pehath Moab, Elioenon, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jesheah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Benai, Shalomit, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Jehanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikim, those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zachar, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place of Casiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely to send them ministers, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jesheah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple slaves, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the 
power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And thus far, the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, church, for the last two years, our family has done a special devotional during the Advent season written by author Arnold Yitri. Each of his books tells a fictional tale of a child who lived around the time that Jesus was born. This year, we're reading about Ishtar, the 10-year-old son of a Persian wise man and one of the witnesses of Jesus' star in the East recorded in the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Think about the wise men for a minute. We know almost nothing about them. We don't really know where they came from. We don't know anything about their religion other than it likely involved astronomy. We don't know how many came to see Jesus. Sorry, we three kings. And when they arrived, we don't know. He probably wasn't an infant at the time they arrived, and he wasn't in the manger anymore. The scripture is clear on that. Here's one thing we do know. Somehow, through a star, whatever that looked like, God revealed the coming Messiah to these wise men. And he gave them favor to find that Messiah. And they were among the first to come and worship him. They sought Jesus, and God blessed them. As I've read Ishtar to the kids, I've been meditating on the blessings that are accompanied by our pursuit of Christ. Wednesday night at prayer meeting, David Garner prayed that in the midst of all of the Advent joys and festivities, the food and the fun, that we would above all else see Christ and seek Him. My heart resonates with that prayer. Oh, for more of Christ, beloved. It is... In the created nature of humanity, we who are made in God's image, that we should seek for glory. It's in our created nature to seek for glory. And subsequent blessings should come when we find that glory. That's the way God created the world and ordained things. <coughs> that's, why Christian, or that's why Christmas, unfortunately, has gone so wrong through the years, the season when almost everyone is seeking glory, but almost no one is seeking the glory that comes from Christ. The blessings that flow from Him. Beloved, a church full of believers that yearn for Jesus and seek Him diligently, there's not a whole lot that can shake that church. Listen to Ezra's prayer from verse 22. The hand of our God is for good for those who seek Him. You don't have to be a wise man to see God's favor is all over Ezra. And blessings follow Ezra, it seems like, wherever he goes, as well as hardships. By the way, there's no secret to fruitfulness in the kingdom of Jesus either. Seek the Lord. 
Seek the Lord. Amen. Well, if you'll look at the text with me this morning, here again in Ezra chapter 8, we have another list of names of the exiles who are returning. For those of you who are picking up with us somewhere mid this series in the book of Ezra, I'll remind you that I addressed an outline of the book of Ezra back when we first began preaching through this text on August the 7th. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 deals with an initial wave of exiles that return from Babylonian captivity, and that was led by Zerubbabel. So both Ezra 1 and last week's text in Ezra 7 have some commonalities. They detail the decrees of two Persian kings for the Jews to be released, to return home, and rebuild. So if Ezra 1 begins with that decree, and then the second wave of exiles comes out in Ezra 7, then we see another decree. We see another release by a pagan Persian king. Well, there's a pattern here. You're going to see, just like in Ezra 2, there was that long list of names, the sermon that was 72 verses in length. We covered all those names in one Sunday morning. Well, we're covering another list of names this morning with the second wave of exiles. And this is intentional on the part of the Holy Spirit to list these names for us. And for a brief teaser of two weeks from now, when we'll have the privilege of hearing preaching from Joshua Jones, chapter 9 is going to deal with some internal opposition to the work. Now, what, why does that matter? Because... Chapters 3 through 6 of Ezra dealt with external opposition to the initial wave of exiles. So you've got decree of release, list of names, external conflict. First six chapters of Ezra. Now, decree of release in chapter 7, chapter 8, list of names, and then beginning in chapter 9, internal conflict in the Jewish community. Again, the theme of God's repeated faithfulness, his constant faithfulness to his people, is a drumbeat meant to get this army of the Lord marching at full speed again and again throughout this text. And there are two things that I want you to see in this initial list of names in the first 14 verses. Number one, there's a purposeful arrangement to the names. You'll notice in verse 2, Gershom and Daniel are mentioned first. They both come from the priestly line of Aaron through the family of Eleazar and Ithamar, though Phineas, Eleazar's son, is named in his place here. Hattush is of the line of kings descended from David and is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3 as the great-grandson of four generations now from King Zerubbabel. Two men from the line of priests and one from the line of kings. You'll also notice that Ezra doesn't mention the number of men who came with those individuals. He just mentions the names. Everywhere else there's the number of group, uh, the groups that came with them. 50 men, 200 men, so on and so forth. He just mentions here though Gershom, Daniel, 
and Hattush. This is an indicator that these names bear weight with this initial list coming back. Think about it for a minute. This group knows nothing of Jerusalem, only Babylonian captivity and exile. They've never seen a lamb sacrificed outside of the temple. They've never gone up the steps to the outer courtyards of the Temple Mount singing the Psalms of Ascent. They've never had a king of their ancestors sit on a throne and judge their cases according to the just standards of God's holy law. They've always been enslaved to a foreign power, a king who wants to keep them quiet, to whom all their productive property and the fruits of their labors and taxation goes, who tells them when they can worship, whom they can worship, and constantly reminds them, who's your king? And now they are being sent back to Jerusalem under the thumb of this king, who isn't letting that leash out too far, not any farther than he can pull it back. But Ezra knows what's up. Ezra knows what time it is. Ezra knows that Yahweh is getting his pieces into position to reestablish the sacrifices, to prepare the people's hearts for worship, to pave the way for the Messiah that he promised, who would be Emmanuel, who would actually be God with his people. And he's going to get them out of this mess. Now, at the beginning of Advent this week, it's likely that many of you read from Isaiah chapter 11, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Israel pictured once as a mighty tree, a beautiful tree, like one of the cedars of Lebanon. But because of sin, it was cut down and cast into the fire. It was put away. But God promised that that tree would sprout again. And this is what Ezra's up to. This is what he's doing with this ordering of names. He's letting you know that the stump is sprouting the shoot. That God is continuing his plan to bring his Messiah. And this is what your celebration of Christmas should be all about. All of us once lived in a state of exile from God. In the passions of our flesh and of our mind, we were the ones carrying out the desires of the body and of the flesh, living under the foreign power of our sin, under its dominion as its slaves. We were by nature children of wrath. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Emmanuel, there he is. He saved us. What does a fat fake in a red suit and a pile of perishable junk have anything to do with that? God gave us himself. But we are still under such oppression. Now, it does not matter, beloved, what power today seems to hold this world in its grasp. Because Jesus said himself, 
that he came to make all things new. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. To take back his kingdom. To seek and to save that which was lost. He came, he saw, and yes, he conquered. Hallelujah. Dear children, Christ the King. Kids. Celebrate Jesus this Christmas. Aim at nothing else than seeing him in everything this Christmas season. Don't let anything blind your eyes to the ultimate glory of the God of the universe entering into your space to make you righteous before God. Some of you open presents this Christmas before you come to church because Christmas this year is on a Sunday. And some of you will do that after. And maybe that's all you can think about right now. Mom and Dad, are we going to open presents before or after church? <laughs> Sounds like some parents have already heard that question. <laughs> Kids, there is not enough presence in the world to contain the glory that your heart is craving right now. Amen. Your heart is craving glory. There are not enough presents underneath that tree or in every tree under the world. To fulfill that longing. That's right. No big gift that you've asked for. This is my big gift. I ask for little things, but I'm waiting for the big gift. It will not satisfy you. That's right. That's right. Jesus Christ alone will satisfy you. That's right. And that's why Ezra puts the priests and the king to start. Well, the second thing that I want you to see at the beginning of this list of names is that the names found in these 14 verses, with the exception of the mention of Joab, are all located back in chapter 2. The names here are repeated. You can actually go back to chapter 2, and in these 14 verses you can find all of the names back in chapter 2. Why would Ezra repeat their names? <laughs> because not all of the households of those heads of households came with Zerubbabel in the first wave of the exiles. Ezra is showing that of those people that the sovereign God chose to be set free from captivity, none would be left behind. He would bring all of his chosen children back to the promised land. The text doesn't tell us if every biological member of those family clans were then reunited, so at the close of chapter 8, now all the families are back together. It just shows us that God is intentionally seeking to bring back more of his own. Those whom, as the New Testament tells us, were predestined. Now, speaking of the Advent season and Christmas and gift giving, what is the greatest gift? That a Christian receives in being chosen by God. You have been selected by God. You have been predestined to be one of his children. What is the greatest gift that that Christian receives? Is it propitiation? Is it atonement? Is it mercy? 
Is it forgiveness? Certainly all of those things are incomprehensibly beautiful gifts, wonderful gifts. We'll spend eternity searching out the depths of each one. I want you to hear the doxology of Paul, though, from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, whatever Paul says next takes priority in his list of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We were chosen in him, we're blessed by God, and we get all these blessings. What's the first thing that he mentions? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The first thing that he lists under every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is the gift of adoption. Thank you, Lord. Church, have you considered the gift of God in pursuing your damned soul the way that the Bible does? <coughs> These people didn't come up with the first wave of exiles. They stayed in exile. And yet God still pursuing. Come. Come. Come to the promised land. You belong home. Come back with me. The slanderer will try and convince you that God saved you, Christian, merely so he could clean up one more dark spot in the universe. He was tired of looking at that ugly thing, so he just made it go away. Okay, good. I don't have to look at that anymore. Satan might try and convince you that God's intention is to increase the volume level in heaven so he can hear more about himself because he's so self-centered. Or maybe you will serve some kind of utility in the kingdom of God. After all, he needs a few more slaves of Christ. But beloved, God saved you in Christ because he wanted to make you his child. Emphasis on the word wanted to. He didn't have to. He wanted to. This isn't the opinion of a man, by the way. I'm not trying to convince you of what I like best or what I see in the text that I think is right. God did the choosing. He chose you in Christ because he loved you. You won't find anything better under your tree than that. And it's almost blasphemy to be, for me to even mention that. To try and compare the two. Listen to these thoughts from, yes, I know, fallen men like myself, but men who I think are on to something. J.I. Packer said, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. A traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and then given the family name. To be right with God the judge, Packer says, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. 
Puritan Thomas Watson said, Extol and magnify God's mercy who has adopted you into his family. Adoption is greater mercy than Adam had in paradise. John Owen said, Adoption is the Christian's fountain privilege. Robert Raymond once said, Can Christians enjoy a blessedness or privilege higher than that access to God the Father through His Son and Spirit, which as members of His household they enjoy? What blessedness can possibly supersede the blessedness of being a child of the Holy God? Jeremy preached a couple of weeks ago on 1 John 1. He spoke about the household in fellowship with one another and with God. The beauty of that household fellowship with God. And if you're in Christ this morning, you are a part of that household. Listen to John's words in the third chapter of that same epistle. <clears throat> he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God? And so we are. Pastor Tim Conway asked his congregation recently to consider, what kind of love is that? I mean, think about that for a minute. What kind of love is that? What kind of love is this that we should be called the children of God? You can imagine taking someone from your extended family in through adoption. Perhaps there was a tragedy and a brother or sister passed away and you took their children in. Surely we would be willing to adopt the children of a church family who lost both parents. You can imagine that. That's love. It is a great kind of love. There are tons of us here who would be willing to adopt a child at risk of abortion. That's another kind of love. But would you adopt a child responsible for murdering one of yours? What kind of love is this? That we're his children? We put his son on the cross. What kind of love is this? Right there, beloved, is the gift of adoption. That's the glory of this gift. That though our sins led to the torment and murder of Christ, God still willingly gave him in order for each one of us in Christ to be his children. You know, some parents will save the biggest Christmas present until the very end of the unwrapping session. Well, here at the beginning of Advent, I want you to hear the best Christmas present first. In Christ, you are a child of God. There's nothing more glorious for the man, woman, or child in Christ than to be a member of God's family through adoption. Yes, the names in this list, in the first 14, first 14 verses of Ezra, are headed back to work on the temple and to strengthen the morale in Jerusalem. They did have a job to do, and so do we. Right here in Anderson County, God has given us good works. We were predestined that we should walk in them. And we are a church eager to get to work. But beloved, please don't forget the greatest of all gifts. You were called by God because he wanted to make you his child. Now, let's look to the second section here. Verses 15 to 20. 
a problem of the lacking Levites. Ezra and his team rendezvoused at the Hava River. It could be a canal off the Euphrates. We're not sure. And they camped there for three days. This would have been a keen time to inspect one's traveling companions and to collect names, which Ezra did. And then he hits a big problem. They don't have any Levites present. The Levites, you know, the assistants to the priests in the temple. Priests can't do all the work. They need their brothers, the Levites, Scripture says, to help them. The Levites, the men in charge of the Ark of God and the maintenance of the temple. The Levites, who taught the people of God during Josiah's Reformation and acted as officers and judges. Those Levites were critical to Ezra's plan for a successful return celebration and worship service. Now the big question is, why didn't anybody volunteer to come? The scripture doesn't tell us, but I think you can imagine some good reasons. You're being asked to leave the only home you've ever known with the job and relative securities you've come to accept as normal and comfortable. You have about seven days to prepare for a dangerous trek across miles and miles of desert with the threat of ambush and robbery and hunger and thirst. And if you actually make it to Jerusalem... Your new job is to work within the highly regulated life as a servant of the people and to the priests in the temple. Whatever reason the Levites didn't show up, this is a huge, huge loss for them, a huge failure. Through God's favor, Ezra went before the king and he won the pitch meeting, so to speak, and was granted liberty and resources for his quest. But HR came back to him with the news that the guys charged with one of the most essential tasks on his team weren't willing to show up for work. The same group, now listen to this, the Levites, the same group that bailed on Aaron and Moses in the wilderness for Korah and his rebellious bunch that got swallowed into the earth, the Levites, those Levites, they're ditching Ezra now and threatening to ruin the second exodus. You see, now here's the thing. These guys have one job. One job. They have been called to a life of service for one task. And they heard about the need and they did not show up for it. So what's the solution? Ezra sends out 11 men to talk it over with the Levites. Those names that are listed in verse 16 in front of you. On Friday night after the beer and psalm sing, some of the men stayed behind. We went out and looked at the pigs on the property and got into a conversation about pigs. And somehow we were talking about how the mafia used pigs. Didn't know the mafia used pigs, but now I do. You'll have to ask somebody else how they use them. I won't say that here. <laughs> but what's interesting, as we were talking about that, I started to think about this situation in my study as though this is one of those mafia moments, you know? They're going to try and muscle the Levites into coming. Eleven dudes walk into some guy's living room, take their seats without invitation. They explain the situation, you know? You're coming with us, Levites. Or else. 
else what? Or else El Nathan here is going to have to take you out back. Who's El Nathan? Oh, we've got three El Nathans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the names are repeated. And there's no particular reason given by the Bible other than the top 100 Hebrew baby names of 458 B.C. Probably was El Nathan. <laughs> I'm confident that the conversation was more amiable than one of those tense scenarios where you're trying to muscle somebody in to do what you want them to do. Nine of the men sent to speak are called by Ezra here leaders in the community, and that could have had to do with them being heads of houses, or they could have been men of outstanding character in the community, men of gravitas and courage. Two of the men have insight. This particular word has to do with wisdom, has to do with their ability to give instruction from the Torah in order that the Levites might be convicted of their sin. That's likely what these men accompanied the group for. These are sent to a man named Iddo with the records that Ezra, uh, with the words that Ezra placed in their mouths to say. In verse 17, that's literally what the word says. He placed in their mouths the words to say. And as a result, again, he credits here to the good hand of our God, was the acquisition of a man of discretion, Sherebiah, and with him approximately 260 men. Those are Levites and temple slaves. And we praise God. The Lord sent his favor to Ezra, came through, and Levites came on the journey. Now, I want to take a moment here to key off on something Matt Cook said two weeks ago when he talked about gossip. How do you handle somebody who is doing what they're not supposed to do? Or maybe I should say it this way. How do you, at Christ the King Church, handle someone who is not doing what they are supposed to do? Now, think about it for a minute. What do you do when you see someone in what appears to be a clear dereliction of duty. They don't show up for work. They're not showing up for church consistently. They're not leading family worship. They're coming up with excuses after excuses to miss the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Now, those might be some of the more obvious ones that we could think of. But what about a father not stopping to correct their child who's running rambunctiously through the sanctuary? What about a father shouting at his child or someone else's child in anger? What about a wife who disrespects her husband while you're standing there having a conversation with them? What if you overhear a conversation where children are saying or plotting or doing what they should not be doing? Absent their parents. No parents are around. I want to give you four things that you can consider when you find yourself in a moment similar to where Ezra found himself. These men have a job, and they're not doing it. What do I do? First, consider this. If God had you see it, you can assume that he wants you to address it. If you noticed it, it's likely that God wanted you to address it. Ezra has the letter of release. He has the whole assembly gathered, and he notices that the men got appointed for their God-ordained 
job didn't show, and so he deals with it. It's my job now. I see that my brothers are out of step. I'm going to go correct them. Don't question whether or not you should speak to them, and don't assume that they know. Well, I'm sure they heard their child running. I'm sure she is going to go home and regret that she said that in front of her husband. God's gift to them in this sin is your awareness of it. Have the courage to address it in that moment. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in what follows. Be the watchman who warns. We just read about Ezekiel. I'm the watchman. And I'm seeing this man or this woman, or this child. They look like they're headed towards sin. And we know sin leads to death. I'm going to be the watchman that warns. Number two, don't give a bunch of wimpy excuses. Ezra could have just hit the road saying, well, guys, none of the Levites showed. We'll hope there are some in Jerusalem when we get back. <laughs> now, you might say, Chris, I can't address it in the moment. I mean, I was in a conversation with him, and I would have had to interrupt him in the middle of what he was saying to let him know. Lame. Bad excuse. Admit it. You're afraid to confront their sin. I know. I'm afraid to confront their sin often. I'm standing there. Something's going on that needs to be dealt with. This person is not dealing with it. I need to address it. But I'm fearful. Your fear, by the way, is also a sin against God. And your fear of that brother or that sister is slander against them. And what do you mean by that? You didn't address it because you were afraid, right? Afraid of what? Your pre preconceived notion that they would get angry with you? That they would respond negatively? That's a slanderous thought. Proverbs 28, 23 says, He who reproves a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. It's better to reprove. Number three, address the sin according to the word of God. And that's right in the text right here. Ezra put the words in the mouths of these men from the Pentateuch, and the men of wisdom gave convincing arguments from the Torah to the Levites. When we must call someone out of sin to the righteous standard of Christ, let's have none of this, well, when you said this, I kind of felt like, no, it should be a biblical sin. You should have a name for it. You should be able to address it as such. That was anger. That was slander. Sister, that was gossip. If it's anger, call it anger. If it's gossip, call it gossip. If it's disrespect from a sister towards her husband right in front of you, pull her aside privately and tell her. Men. Pull that husband aside later and tell him that he should rebuke his wife for speaking that way. Lastly, and this is if you are the one being called out. Start by first thanking God for this moment. But what if they're wrong? Nobody has perfect pitch, beloved. We're going to whip on some of these attempts. But the fact that you have a brother or sister 
with the guts to hate your sin like you should is a blessing from God. You start by thank, thank you, Lord. This person cares about me. This is also going to help you avoid the second most important fallacy when you're called out. And that's don't get easily offended. They see something. Okay, hear them out. Ask good questions. Take it into consideration. Don't get defensive. If they got it wrong, it matters just as much how you handle this situation as whether or not you cleared your own case. Oh, I was, I, I wasn't, I didn't do anything wrong. And now I'm going to act like a troll to you to prove my case. Well, congratulations. Now you have done something wrong. Two steps forward, two steps back. Lastly, don't get caught up on tone. Don't be the tone police. Some people are good at tense situations, and others are social dumpster fires. Okay? <laughs> Y'all know people like that. Have some grace and focus on content, not your feelings. They're hurting my feelings. Lame. Brothers and sisters, we need, first, men who will do this kind of thing. Women see stuff easily and often have a drive to do something about it. I could do something about that. Ezra didn't go get the sisters to go get the Levites. He got the men. Brothers, you've got to have the courage to lead out in this. One of the most masculine and, more importantly, one of the most loving things you can do is tell someone about the sin that you see, and tell them frankly. God's given us a tremendous opportunity to make an impact in Anderson County through this body of believers. Let's not let sin in our camp and let that ruin it. Well, I want to conclude briefly with this last three verses, verses 21 to 23, where Ezra and his team fast and pray together. Now that the Levites are present, it's time to head out. But remember, they are traveling a highway across mostly desert terrain. There are no mile markers and no signs indicating next rest stop is in five miles. There are no state troopers checking caravan speed limits. There are no emergency service vehicles in case your camel gets a limp. What there are are plenty of dangers. There are bandits, pirates, scallywags of various kinds. You see in verse 22 that Ezra has already boasted to King Artaxerxes of the power of Yahweh for good on all those who seek him. So though he was given everything that he asked for, he could have asked for a band of soldiers, and it would have been given to him. He didn't ask for the protection of man because he sought God and he knew God would protect his own. Now there's a fair question to ask yourself. How much... Right now, beloved, are you depending on the arm of man and man's help for deliverance from your current trial, whatever that may be? Go back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Are you pursuing Christ? This Advent, you think, are you pursuing Christ? John 2 prayed this last Wednesday. Y'all should come to pray meeting because people say some really amazing things. That are really encouraging, wonderful prayers. John 2 prayed this last Wednesday at prayer meeting 
that we would seek the favor of God when we are suffering with illness. It's no shock to anybody. We've all been seeking help with this illness that's been going around. John prayed specifically that night, though, that before we go to the medicine cabinet or to the chiropractor or to the ozone machine or to the nebulizer or to the ice bath or to the apple cider vinegar or to the bovine colostrum supplements, <laughs> to ask the question, have I first taken this to the Lord? Am I seeking the help of God Almighty? And not just the quick, and maybe that's all you've got time for. I just have a quick breath prayer. That's all I've got time for. I've got to make a decision. But really, are you pursuing the help of God? At the first sign of the sickness in your home, then, is your gut reaction to gather your family together and pray for God's help over this trial? Sisters, how much time do you spend researching remedies, and how often do you bring your challenges before the great physician? This is especially hard for women because God created them with nurture at the very core of their nature. Sin has a nasty way of wanting to corrupt everything, including that. I'm not unaware of how many of your physical trials are very difficult. I'm not unaware of that. I'm not saying it's wrong to eat right and take supplements and go to doctors. But beloved, the word of God you are holding in your lap this morning says a promise for Christians. God has his hand for good on those seeking him. Amen. You believe it? Amen. We either believe it and pursue the fulfillment of it or we don't. The default posture of the Christian ought to be, God, I need your help. Not, how can I medicate this? Ezra and his crew needed protection on the journey. And so they fasted and prayed. He had a need. It was obvious on whom he was relying for help. Beloved, do you have a need for God's help right now? Do you have a child that you're tempted to think is too far beyond control? Is your marriage outwardly polished up for Sunday, but the rest of the week it's a royal mess? Do you have a secret addiction to a drug, or a nightly glass of wine, or pornography, or a gossipy conversation, or some kind of violent outburst, or act, or a food, even dark chocolate things? And you just can't or don't want it to shake it. You must begin with repentance. Life starts there. <coughs> but have you considered seeking God through fasting and prayer? In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Professor Don Whitney defines fasting as a God-appointed means to humble ourselves and turn physical hunger for food or any other craving into spiritual hunger for God. We've got needs in our church, beloved. When's the last time that you sought God in fasting and prayer? To the men, this is one of the most masculine things that a man can do. Okay, Chris, you say that a lot. This is masculine this. this is a... But think about it, beloved. A biblical man is a self-ruled man. He can go with plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And nothing shakes him from biblical contentment 
in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's crazy soft and childish to miss a meal, and then all of a sudden, Mr. Grumpy Face shows up. Ruins everybody's day at home. He's not a self-ruled man. To the women, ladies, I know for many of you, this is very difficult. Most of our women are pregnant, or recently <laughs> pregnant, and I wouldn't recommend intense fasting during pregnancy, or dealing with some health challenge, or already on pretty strict dietary setbacks. What else am I supposed to do? Sisters, humble yourself before the Lord and prohibit something for the sake of seeking God. And by the way, fasting takes practice. You may envision the horror of going without food all day long. And that's a good sign that you probably need to start doing some regular fasting if that's the way that you react to it. But if it's your first time, I'd start by skipping a meal. Just skip one meal. Healthy doses of water throughout that time. Do that for several weeks in a row. Then attempt what I would call a 24-hour fast. That's like going from dinner to the next dinner. So you're skipping two meals. You're skipping breakfast and lunch. After regular rhythms of that, you can try a 32-hour fast. That's one full day without anything, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And there are more fasts in the Bible. Three days, week-long fast, 40-day fast. By the way, they are all doable. Your body did not change since the time of the apostles or prior to where our bodies can no longer handle this. It takes work. It takes practice. And there are benefits to diligently seeking the Lord. But we have to discipline ourselves for it. The most difficult thing about the fast, I'm here to tell you, is that it will reveal your sin like nothing else. It will show you some areas that are keeping you from seeking God and finding great fulfillment. It's hard, and it's awesome. You've got to remember this, beloved. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. And remember the psalmist said, when you seek Him with all your heart. Notice this. Ezra asked for no soldiers because of God's honor. Ignoring the needs of the people's safety who were going with him, he was seeking God above every other concern. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. In conclusion, beloved, what do you have need of God right now? What do you have need of God for right now? Are you lost and in need of a shepherd? Then turn away from your sin and seek Christ while he may be found. For those of you who may not know Christ, let me conclude this word to you with what Ezra said to the king. The power of God's wrath is against all who forsake him. If you do not turn in repentance and faith, God's wrath is still on you. It still abides, even to this moment. But here's the good news. He is still in the business of taking in lost sheep. He is still in the business of welcoming those 
whom he's chosen as adopted children. Christian, do you have a besetting sin or an acute marriage struggle, a sense of aimlessness or despondency right now? God's promise to you is that his hand is for good on you if you seek him. How much more firm is that promise to those he has adopted into his family through the blood of Jesus, his son? How much more firm is that promise even today for us? This morning you sang the words, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. That's the mystery. You don't have to be a wise man to see it. The one the wise men came to see, Jesus, what kind of ruler would he be? It's not a mystery anymore. We know he's the ruler of the universe. The Father, through Christ, bringing many sons to glory. Beloved, you can come to him. So seek Christ. Set aside, set aside every weight that hinders you right now during the season and come seeking Christ. Father, we thank you that in your word we can seek you. We thank you that you love us and you give us every good thing in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have made us your children. You have made us a kingdom and priests to you to reign along with Christ. All of these blessings and more, Lord, but you call us, you beckon us in your word to seek you. To wrestle in prayer, seeking Christ, seeking glory that comes only from him, and finding blessing. Lord, would you enable your people with the courage this coming week to do just that, to lay aside every weight and thing that hinders them, and to run the race for Christ. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.